we come today to the end of what's known as the 12 days of Christmas. We talked about this a little bit last week if you weren't with us, but most people outside of the church end their celebration of Christmas on December 25th. But a long time ago, some Christians in the Middle Ages decided that that's just getting the party started and, in, and established this December 25th as the first day of 12 days of celebration, a time to more deeply reflect on the gift of Emmanuel, of God coming down to earth to be with us in Jesus Christ. And so this last day of the celebratory journey of the 12 days of Christmas is known as Epiphany. Now, Epiphany is a strange-sounding word. Uh, it's typically used when someone has a great insight or revelation, and that applies here. But in the Christian faith, Epiphany is actually the designation for the day we commemorate when the Magi, the wise men from the East, arrived in Bethlehem to give their gifts to Jesus in recognition of his birth as king of the Jews. Epiphany in the history of the church is also a day when we commemorate the baptism of Jesus, which has sort of a similar revelatory effect. Um, that came at the start of his ministry when Jesus was baptized. And when he was baptized, it was revealed that he was the Christ, the Messiah. One couple more things about Epiphany. Epiphany is not just the name of the day at the end of the 12 days of Christmas. Epiphany is actually also the name in the church for this season of time that's going to follow between now and what is known as Lent, that season when we begin to reflect on Christ's journey to the cross and beyond. So Epiphany has all of these uses within the Christian faith, but whether it's a day or a season or just a word in our vocabulary, what I want you to take away is Epiphany is about perceiving something previously unseen or unrealized. And as we return to our study of the letter to the Hebrews, that's what the writer is trying to provoke for his listeners, a breakthrough in their understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. So if you'll forgive the pun, as we get back into the text, maybe today we can have an epiphany on epiphany. <laughs> yeah, see what I did there? Great. Yeah, I knew it was bad, but I couldn't resist it. So with that lame introduction. Um, let's listen to this part of the letter from Hebrews chapter 3. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation." I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed... We hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage obviously is clearly building off of something that's been previously said. So just very quickly, I'd like to review what we looked at at the start of the chapter last week. 
But before I do that, just a reminder, this is a letter that's addressed to predominantly Jewish Christians. And specifically these, this is a community that's facing persecution for their belief in Jesus as the Messiah. And so to alleviate their suffering and yet still try to remain committed to Christ, this community of believers is being tempted to try to fit Jesus into, let's say, a less controversial, a less contentious mold. Encountering this inclination, the focus of the argument in this letter as a whole, but specifically in the opening chapters, is that Jesus is better. Jesus cannot be fit into just any one mold. He is distinctly and uniquely superior to anyone, to any human prophet, any heavenly angel. And as we heard last week at the start of chapter three, he's superior even to Moses, the central figure, the bedrock, the man of the Jewish faith. Jesus is better than all the rest because Jesus is more than a man, more than a human being, but nothing less than fully divine, fully God. Jesus is not only better, he is the best because Christ, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one who was promised, the Messiah for whom we have been hoping and waiting. While Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, we ended last week hearing Jesus is the son, the son of God, the architect, the builder of the house. And as a result, we are encouraged at the end of that section last week to fix our eyes, to keep our focus on Christ. And so now as we come to this portion of the letter, which we just heard read, the writer's trying to underscore this encouragement, this admonition, as he calls his listeners to remember and learn from the lessons of their past. In fact, he quotes, if you didn't recognize it, track number 95 in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the playlist of Israel's history and worship of the Lord. And track number 95, this particular song reflects back on one of the more frustrating and lamentable moments in the people's relationship with God through Moses. Specifically, it is the memory of the Exodus journey, the journey of freedom from slavery in Egypt to coming to a new home in the promised land of Canaan. It's the remembrance of the time, as it says in Psalm 95, the time of testing in the wilderness as their ancestors faced the choice of whether or not to trust and believe in God's guidance and provision. And if this is ringing some bells, if you're remembering this story, you know how this turns out. The people rebelled against this choice. Instead of opening their hearts and learning to listen and follow the Lord's lead, the Israelites stubbornly kept going their own way to the point of hardening their hearts against God. And it was this rebellion, this attitude of, towards God of prove yourself to me. It was this orientation of hard-heartedness that resulted in an entire generation of Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years until they eventually dropped dead. So why is the writer bringing all of this up now? And the way I like to think of this is uh, it brings me back to a childhood friend I had who shall remain nameless. But what I remember about my childhood friend was his mom. And his mom was famous, maybe you've done this as a parent, of giving parental wisdom all the time. But this mom in particular would always give parental wisdom by adding a story uh, of warning about a neighborhood kid in the community. So the one that I particularly remember, my friend and I used to go to the local pool on a regular basis to go swimming, and his mom was big. Maybe you say, still say this, I don't know. If you eat anything, wait 30 minutes before you go swimming. I'm going to use her voice as I remember it. It's probably terrible. But she would say that, wait 30 minutes if you eat anything before you go swimming. Don't forget about Jimmy Mula, okay? Don't forget about Jimmy Mula. 
Jimmy Mula was at the pool, just like you're going, and the ice cream man came, and he had two hot dogs, and he had a cone, and he didn't wait 30 minutes. He went up on the high board, he took a high dive, and he got in the water, and he got a cramp, and he drowned. Wait 30 minutes, 30 minutes before you go in the water. By the way, I never found Jimmy Mueller. I don't think he exists. I think he's fictional. But my point in bringing this up is this is what the writer of this letter is trying to do right now. Instead of using a fictional story, <laughs> this writer is using a true story as a cautionary tale for his intended audience. He wants them to see the potential parallels between their circumstances and those of their former generation. Like their ancestors, they are on the other side of an exodus, another exodus, a new and better one. Liberation, not merely from the oppression of a ruthless empire, but their exodus, our exodus, is freedom from the bondage of sin, death, and the devil. The journey of those who came before them was the road of testing, to resting and being settled in a new geographical homeland, a place you could point to on a map. But the journey of this audience, our journey, is the way to somewhere even greater, from the way things are to the way things were always meant to be, from the finite, broken life we settle for and into the full, abundant, and eternal life for which we were created. It's the journey of being settled and resting in our relationship with our creator, at home, in perfect communion with ourselves, with each other, and above all, with God. And for the writer of this letter, this Christian community, like the Israelites in the desert, stands at a crucial moment in the wilderness, at a crossroads in their journey of faith. In the midst of all their troubles, as they endure continued suffering, will this community of people Choose to hold on firmly to the very end or will they turn away from the living God allowing their hearts to be hardened? And you need to understand something about what they were facing. This again is a community of Jewish Christians. So when we talk about persecution, when we talk about suffering, what you need to understand is the level of persecution and suffering they were facing is they as a result of choosing to believe and follow Christ, they were being cut off from their families. They were being divorced from the faith in which they were raised. To any Jew who did not believe in Jesus, they were a heretic. They were being removed as far as any other Jew would be concerned from their national heritage and identity. They were being isolated. They were being cut off. They were being persecuted for betraying the faith. And it's in this context that the writer is saying, don't let go of Christ. Don't let go of Christ. Now, for most of us today, at least in the Western world, our day-to-day -day circumstances are not nearly as dire as those who received this letter. They're not even close. We're not facing that kind of persecution. We're not facing that kind of suffering. But we can still learn from this letter. We can learn from what's being written here because this is just a truism. Like anyone else, we live according to what we particularly experience. We don't compare ourselves to other people. We recognize we live what we know. And all of us in this room have found ourselves walking in the wilderness when it comes to following Christ. I don't know if you're there right now. I don't know if, when you've been there before, but you know what that experience is like, walking in the wilderness. It's that moment when everything around you that was once lush and fruitful, maybe it's your work, maybe it's your home life, maybe it's your health, maybe it's your relationships. It could be any one of those things. It could be all of those things. It's that moment when everything that was once lush and fruitful becomes barren and lifeless. Whatever it is, it's that moment 
It's that stretch, it's that season when our lives end up in the desert. That ever happened to you? Have you ever turned around twice and found yourself in the desert? Have you maybe found yourself today? Maybe as 2020 has started, it's not begun so well, or maybe 2019 wasn't all that great and it's just carried over. Maybe you find yourself walking through a wasteland right now. If you know what this feels like, if you know what I'm talking about, it's that experience where every day it just seems like you're wading through wind and sand. All you feel is the heat and the pressure. And when the night comes, there's no relief because there's only darkness and the growing fear that you are all alone. When you are walking in the wilderness, when you find yourself in the desert, it doesn't take long for you to lose your sense of direction to not remember, to know which way is up. It doesn't take much to start to begin to worry that you're not going anywhere. You're going nowhere. And that, that moment is when the rubber meets the road, isn't it? That's when our faith, what we believe, in whom we place our trust is tested. And the thing is, you read through the scriptures from start to finish, And we may not like it, but here it is. Our creator, our God, does not shy away from allowing us to experience these moments, these seasons, because these moments, these seasons are when we can truly learn what matters and what does not. These seasons, these moments are when we perceive the one, the only one we need, the only one who can provide for us, the only one who can save us. It's easy to say we believe in God when God gives us what we want when we want it. When the Lord operates according to our timetable and our expectations. But what we believe becomes more than talk, more than words, more than the faith we were raised in, more than a song we sing on Sunday, more than a prayer we offer by rote before a meal. What we believe becomes more than talk, more than words, when everything doesn't line up according to our plans. When all the other things we turn to for strength, for success, for resolve, aren't working anymore. And God is all we have. It's in the wilderness that we realize grace isn't a bonus. Grace isn't a power boost that the Lord gives us now and again when we ask for it. It's in the wilderness that we learn grace is the gift that teaches us without God's help and training, nothing is possible. Without grace, we just end up wandering in the wilderness. But it's in the desert that we also discover It's in the desert of our lives we also discover God is faithful. It's not when we have all things. It's when we have nothing that we come to appreciate the Lord is everything to us. That Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. That Christ alone is our hope and our salvation. This is the epiphany of epiphany. God in Christ is everything to us or God in Christ is nothing to us. And that may seem extreme, but it is what it is. There is no middle ground. There is no halfway. And some of us who are here have lived our lives saying, I'm all right with Jesus. Jesus is great, but Jesus isn't everything to me. Hear it again. Jesus is everything to us or Jesus is nothing to us. There is no middle ground. There's no meeting God halfway. And the thing is, we won't learn this. We won't realize 
This is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life we're looking for, the life we've always wanted, the life we were meant for, unless we walk through the wilderness. Unless we find ourselves in the desert and choose to follow Christ. Unless we choose to yield to the Lord's guidance and direction rather than trying to go our own way. And the thing is, the reason why the writer is bringing this up, quoting Psalm 95, is the Israelites resisted this epiphany during their wilderness journey. Instead of allowing their faith to be tested and strengthened, the Israelites tried to turn the tables by instead putting the Lord to the test through repeatedly demanding more and more signs of God's provision and care. And there's something really important to keep in mind here when you think about that. That's just understood, that the writer doesn't point out for us, but if we know this story, that's understood. It, the Israelites hadn't always lived in the wilderness. It's not as if living in the desert was all they knew. Meaning if that's all they knew, if that's their, what was their reality, we could hardly blame them. They didn't know any better. But the people, the Israelites, the Exodus generation, weren't testing God out of ignorance. They weren't testing God because they didn't know any better. This is the Exodus generation we're talking about. These are the people who were set free from their enslavement under Pharaoh and had a front row seat to all the fireworks as one by one through the 10 plagues, the Lord dethroned all the would-be gods of Egypt. This is the generation saved from certain death by passing through the waters of the Red Sea while the rest of Pharaoh's army was drowned. These are the people who trembled before the fire and smoke of Mount Sinai as they stood before the very presence of the Lord. This is the generation fed by manna from heaven, their thirst satisfied with water that poured out of rocks. And they were protected by God's hands from would-be attackers. It's not from a lack of information or a lack of experience that the Israelites chose to harden their hearts against the Lord. The people chose to harden their hearts from a lack of applied knowledge, from their unwillingness to accept and abide in what the Lord had already provided for them. Instead of being grateful for what they had received and continued to receive for 40 years by the Lord's hand, the people grumbled about what they didn't yet have. Instead of learning, they could trust the Lord to provide whatever they needed, Instead of abiding, relying on, and turning into their relationship with God, the people turned away from the Lord and went their own way. And they never rested. They just wandered in a constant state of fear and bitterness. They never made it to the home in the land that God had prepared for them. And that is what the audience of this letter is on the verge of doing also. In the midst of the struggles of their own journey, through the wilderness of their suffering and persecution, their hunger for righteousness, their thirst for justice, their longing for an end to all their troubles. This community is beginning to wander. This community is leaning towards walking away from Jesus. Their doubts, their frustrations, their impatience are getting the better of them. Their hearts risk being hardened, the writer of this letter warns, by sin's deceitfulness. None of you may, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I find this a fascinating phrase, by the way. What exactly is the deceitfulness of sin? And by giving us this example from Psalm 95, the example of the Exodus generation, 
we can figure out the answer. Based on the example of the Exodus generation, the deceitfulness of sin is the temptation to forget all the Lord has done for us. It is the overriding impulse to dismiss our knowledge of what we have been given by God, to negate what we have experienced in our relationship with the Lord, and instead to focus on what we lack, what we don't have. Rather than, based on our prior knowledge and past experience, choosing to believe we will be provided for, choosing to trust we will be taken care of, we demand that God prove himself even as we question whether or not the Lord can and will come through. The deceitfulness of sin taunts us to reverse our relationship with the Lord through our words and actions, in essence declaring, I'm not interested or willing to put my faith and trust in you unless you prove you can deliver something I want, something I believe I need now. Never mind what you've already provided for me. Never mind how you met me where I was before, giving me what I needed yesterday. What have you done for me lately, God? I want assurances you can deliver today. The deceitfulness of sin convinces us our faith in God is conditional based on the Lord providing for us on our terms according to our level of satisfaction. Now, I want to be clear about something. Walking through the wilderness isn't a cakewalk. We've all been there. Some of us may be in that journey right now. Desert stretches in our journey of faith can be long and they are most certainly exhausting. If you've been there, if you're there, there are times when we will hunger and thirst for more than we have. There will be moments when the fear is real, not imaginary. The fear is real and the doubts begin to form. There will be voices whispering or maybe even shouting at us that we might as well just give up and settle. Or if we're gonna get anywhere, we have to take matters into our own hands. All this is part of the journey of faith, the testing of what we believe. There's no getting around it. But notice the specific caution the writer of this letter gives is not against having a sinful, unbelieving heart. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. That's not the caution. Because think about it. Because of our brokenness, because of our sinful nature, this is the heart we all have in relationship to the Lord. We all have sinful, unbelieving, broken hearts. That's the problem. God didn't come down to us in Christ because we believed in him. God came down to us in Christ because he believes in us. While we were yet sinners, not when our heart was perfect, but when our heart was broken, sinful and unbelieving, Jesus died for us. Our broken, sinful, unbelieving hearts are a given, even as they are being transplanted by the grace of God thanks to the work of the cross and the resurrection and through the Holy Spirit. No, the specific warning is given our sinful, unbelieving hearts that are prone to wander. The warning is don't turn away from the living God. Don't choose to let go of Jesus and let your heart be led astray by the deceitfulness of sin, believing that God owes you something demanding that Christ prove himself to you, and until he does so, justifying your right to go your own way. That is how we harden our hearts. This is how we reject the heart transplant the Spirit is seeking to provide for us. And from the example of the Exodus generation, we witness the trajectory of a hardened heart. 
A hardened heart leads to wandering. A hardened heart results in grumbling and complaining. A hardened heart leaves us restless all the time, bound up by fear and uncertainty. Thankfully, this passage, in this passage, this writer gives us more than just a caution, a warning. Thankfully, in the midst of all of it, he also offers us a prescription for keeping our hearts open rather than closed, for preventing our hearts from becoming hard and letting them remain soft. And what it is is nothing earth-shattering. I'm not about to give you some revelatory insight here. Because in many ways, what the writer says here is just a repetition of what he's already advised us to do and is going to keep on saying throughout this letter. And it's this, to actively listen to God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That we come to share in Christ if we hold on to Jesus to the very end. But in the midst of this, the writer does add something new here. He adds the means by which we can ensure we are hearing what God is saying to us, that we are listening the best method for not being led astray and letting go of Christ. And it's this, by encouraging one another daily. By encouraging one another daily. In other words, we need to speak courage into each other's lives by reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness. That's why God brings us, one of the reasons why God brings us together in community. That's why I talked about this last week, this idea of following Jesus without the church and I don't mean a building, I mean the, the community of faith is not only unbiblical, it's insane, it's suicidal. Okay, it's suicidal. Because God calls us into a community because we forget. We get self-focused, we navel-gaze. We get self-absorbed. We need a community of faith around us and they need us so that we can constantly be encouraging each other, reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness. Why what we do here, why when we gather, we do the same thing every week. And part of this is part of the encouragement. We sing, we pray, we celebrate. We celebrate even when things suck. We celebrate even when we are in the wilderness or in the desert because we are encouraging each other in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the desert, to continue to hold on by expressing gratitude, counting our blessings, acknowledging the Lord's provision. By redirecting our focus, gratitude redirects our focus from what we lack, and we can get stuck there, and instead be redirected back to what we have received, and even more than that, to be redirected towards what we have been promised, what we can look forward to because of Jesus. We are meant to encourage each other. That is how we keep our hearts open. That is how we prevent our hearts from becoming hard. And what I love is how he adds here, he could have just said, by encourage, but encourage one another daily, but he goes, as long as it is called today. And that little add-on reminds us that part of the encouragement we must offer to each other as we journey together in following Jesus, especially through the wilderness, part of the encouragement we have to offer each other is to remember to take it one step at a time. Or as Christ taught us more directly, do you remember this? We have to remind each other not to get caught up in worrying about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. We gotta remind ourselves to not keep freaking out about what's gonna happen next, but instead to abide and apply the knowledge and experience we have in our relationship with Jesus, the presence and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in order to make the most of today. Today. And even if that just means holding on and not letting go of Christ, that's enough. 
Because Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. Guys, we're here. We're in a new, new year. We're in a new decade, the 2020s. And as the calendar has turned the page yet again, as we've started a new year, as we've started a new decade, some of us have made resolutions. Some of us have sworn off of resolutions. But I have one for you. How about this as a New Year's resolution for us as a community? How about this, that we encourage each other daily? How's this for a resolution? Encourage each other daily. How does, that, how, how, how does that strike you? That we resolve together to be more encouraging of each other in Christ. Rather than spewing piss and vinegar about the state of this world, the wilderness in which we find ourselves, and there's enough of that going on out there. There's enough going on within the church. You know this. It is easier to complain. That's our default. And it horrifies me. I can go into a restaurant. I can be with my kids. I can be anywhere. And the first thing that comes to my mind is what's wrong, what's not right, what they could do better, where they could try harder, where I'm not satisfied. That is my default. I don't have to try. It just wells up within me. Where the effort comes is when I go, whoa, stop, stop. Who died and made you Messiah? Jesus didn't die to make me the Messiah. And I stop and I realize encouragement. I have been encouraged because while I was yet a sinner, Christ came and died for me. I have been encouraged. Therefore, encouragement is all I have to give. I don't need to add to all the crap that's out there. I don't need to add to all the vitriol, all the vehemence that's out there. That's easy. I need to be a light. I need to shine the light of Christ that is within me. How's that about for a resolution? That we would be more encouraging to each other in Christ. How about this? That we resolve daily to spur each other on in following Jesus more closely. Instead of feeding the fear. Instead of playing upon each other's anxieties and worries. What if we resolve to daily spur each other on to just hold on and follow Jesus more closely. Rather than live in the lie that peace is somehow possible. That we can get things right all on our own not going to happen. I don't care who you're looking to. If it's not Jesus, it's not going to happen. There are good people out there, but they, there's no one who is like Jesus. Jesus is better than all the rest. I don't know who you're following. I don't know who you put your hope in, but if it's not Jesus Christ, then you're backing the wrong horse. What if we daily spurred each other in the midst of it? Again, not to tear anybody else down, but to say, hey, in the midst of not knowing anything else, we know this. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the best. Focus on him. Follow him more closely. Don't worry about yourself. Don't worry about that person. Remember that moment at the end of the Gospel of John when Peter has been restored and he's like, hey, what's going to happen to that guy? Remember what Jesus says? Yeah, that's really good. I'm glad you're asking that. Let me tell you. No, Jesus says, what does it matter what happens to him? All that matters is you follow me. Follow me. What if we resolved just to continually, in our temptation to get off track, to wander, to spur each other, to follow Jesus more closely? What if we resolved to regularly reassure each other? The worries are real. The doubts come. The fear is out there. But what if we regularly reassured each other to hold fast to Jesus, even when we have no idea what's going on? Instead of trying to figure out what's going on, instead of trying to tell people why this is happening, 
or how long it's going to take? What if instead of trying to come up with answers that we don't have and coming up with platitudes that really don't work, what if instead we resolve just to reassure each other, just hold on? Just hold on to Jesus. Even though you have no idea what's going on, even though you don't know why what's happening is happening, even though you don't know how long what you're going through will last or where you will end up, you know this, hold on to Jesus because Jesus is holding on to you. Guys, how's your heart these days? You know, start of the new year, time for a checkup. How's your heart these days? Is your heart hard or soft? Tell the truth. How's your heart these days? Is it hard or soft? Is it open or closed? Are you starting to wander in the wilderness in your life right now? Maybe you're already in the middle of the desert and you don't even realize it because you're still looking at the mirage. You can tell the posture of your heart just by looking at the posture of your body. You can tell the posture of your heart just by looking at the reflection of your face in the mirror. What if we were, what if someone were to record you all day long? Everything you said, what's coming out of you, encouragement or grumbling? If they played that back to you, would you want to hear what they recorded? Let's step it up a notch. What if someone followed you and filmed you all day long and said, okay, let's play back. Let's see how you occupied your day. Would they find you wandering, grumbling and complaining, shaking your fist, pointing the finger, giving the finger? Or would they find you encouraging, getting down on your knees, opening up your heart and letting God's word pour into you and pour out of you? Where's your heart? Where are you? Are you in the wilderness? Are you just on the outskirts of the desert? Is it just about to begin? Maybe what you need is a little encouragement. Maybe you need a lot. Maybe you need some encouragement that you can actively trust that you are loved and not abandoned by Christ. You are loved and not abandoned by Christ. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you see or can't see, Jesus is with you every step of the way. Maybe you just need some encouragement that no matter what you've done or left undone, no matter whether you've forgiven yourself or someone else is still holding unforgiveness over you, no matter what you've done or left undone, you are forgiven and not condemned by Jesus. Maybe you need some encouragement that the road to repentance, turning around, and that turn is a hard turn, turning around the road to repentance. Maybe you need encouragement that the road to repentance is also the road to redemption. Maybe you need some encouragement in the eye of the storm that while we see in part, one day we will know in full. We don't know why things are happening, why everything happens that happens. We see in part, maybe you need encouragement that yes, we can't see it all, but we will one day know in full. And maybe you need encouragement to know that while we only know in part, what we know in part is this, the Lord has promised to give us hope and a future. Maybe you need the encouragement to know no matter how bad it gets, no matter how nasty it gets out there or in here, Maybe you need the encouragement to know the Lord has promised, the Lord has taken care of for us, that even death itself has got nothing on you or me. Death itself has got nothing on you or me. My friends, the only remedy for our tendency to wander, the whole time I was writing this sermon, I kept thinking about that hymn. Do you remember it? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. My friends, 
The only remedy for our tendency to wander is for us to mutually, together, redirect ourselves to listen to the voice of the one who is true. The only answer to our feeling of restlessness, you're feeling restless? Can't sit still, you can't get comfortable? The only answer to our feeling of restlessness when we can't see where our life is headed, where we don't, can't figure out exactly where Jesus is leading us, the only answer to our feeling of restlessness is for us to continually remind each other of where we've been, of how far Christ has carried us. And out of that knowledge and experience by faith to put our life, all of it, our future into Jesus' hands. Because there's no other place we'd rather be. There's no other place that will lead us home. Amen.